0: Go back and look at, just everybody do yourself a favor and look at the the cover of the first Willie Nelson album And Then I Wrote. They have him in like a suit and tie with like slick back hair with like brill cream. He's so not Willie Nelson. He's so like sh- obviously shoved into this mold. And, looks like uh, a
1: CPA. <laughs> <laughs> he also looks like he's saying,
2: is <laughs> what... <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, lifelong musicians get together to discuss and analyze and complain about an album from Robert Dimery's seminal book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. This week, we've been listening to Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger. Before we get started... Going around the horn, introducing everybody, having everyone introduce themselves—that is—and giving their encapsulated review of what they think about this record and how their week has been. Let's just play a little snippet of "Redheaded Stranger," the title track from Willie Nelson's record that we've been listening to all week. Here it is.
2: Walking behind was a bay. The redheaded stranger had eyes like thunder, and his lips they were sad and tight. His little lost love lay asleep on the hillside, and his heart was heavy as night. Don't cross him, don't boss him, he's wild in his sorrow, he's riding, hiding his pain. Don't fight it, don't spite it. just wait till tomorrow, maybe he'll ride on again. yellow lady leaned out of her window and watched as he passed.
3: Okay, now you're acclimated to what the production value of this record is. I would country. love... <laughs> it is definitely country. It is definitely country. <laughs> so before I get into some of the history, some of Willie's history, the context, kind of where this fits amongst his... Get ready for this: ninety-seven studio albums. Shut up! (laughs) That is not say potheads are lazy. (laughs) That is not including live albums, of which he has thirteen additional. And he's still going. He's still going. He's in his eighties, I think, now, and he's still going strong. So we'll we'll get into a little bit of that context, kind of where he comes from, where he was at in that storied career when he recorded this one. and But before we do that, let's go around and introduce ourselves and give a little review. I'm gonna kick it over to Tom.
0: All right, hey everybody, this is Tom. Happy to be with you again this week. Uh, let's see, my tweet length review here. Um, Willie Nelson manages to pack more beauty into a 90 second song than most artists achieve in their entire careers, but is it enough to make this an essential album That still remains to be seen, in my opinion.
3: Mm, mm, Interesting. Good food for thought. Adam, you were coming out kind of hot on the texturing. What do you have to
1: say? Yeah, this is Adam, and I feel like a dick (laughs) compared to what Tom just said. But this album is so bland that if it was distilled wine, it would be called Blandy. If it was the author of Atlas Shrugged, it would be named Bland Rand. And if it was a character in the Star Wars universe, it would be Blando Calrissian. You didn't go with Ein Bland? (laughs) Well, uh, uh, you're right. I maybe missed opportunity there. (laughs) So you're saying this is uh,
3: suitable for patients recovering from surgery? (laughs) Precisely. (laughs) Phil, let's hear what you have to say.
4: You know, I feel like this album has set a mood for the last week that is just one 33-minute song. And it's a beautiful song, but it's one song. Okay,
3: that's fair. fair. I think that I think that's part of what they were going for. Yeah, what I said was, this is Rob, and what I said was, country's first concept album meanders through town, popping its head in at the old saloon on a whim, and winding up day drunk, napping in the sun.
4: (laughs) Not bad. So, is,
3: I mean, it doesn't sound is, bad.
4: Is it a concept <laughs> album? I didn't get
3: that it, vibe. It sure is. In fact, it's been hailed as by many as country's first concept album, and some have even called it the Sgt. Peppers of country music. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> I know we just I, did the Sgt. Peppers of hip-hop uh, last yeah, week, Everything
1: it was, or... is the Sgt. Pepper of something, which, <laughs> right. Yeah, is right. that a uh... It's like that's that is a high bar. Does anybody know what country's second concept
0: album was? Because I I have no idea. I, I hope can't it wasn't Guitar it Town. Be. Oh, <laughs> Lord, Lord, no. <laughs> Unless the concept was write a bunch of really middle of the road songs. <laughs> so, pretend you're a terrible songwriter. Go. So, this was this was an
3: interesting for me. This was not the first time I'd heard the record. This was something that played fairly often when I was a kid growing up. Uh, my parents had it on the player. And so I had, I'd heard it, but I hadn't given it a, a super deep listener, dug into some of the mythology or or really read into where Willie Nelson was at in his life. So let me give you a, a little bit of background on the record. It is intended as a concept album based around this very, very old song called The Tale of the Red-Headed Stranger, which was originally recorded back in the early 1950s and was something that when Willie Nelson, early in his career, before he had any success as a songwriter, or a performer, he was a radio DJ, a fairly successful radio DJ in Fort Worth and then later in Portland. He kind of moved around a bit, as radio DJs do. But anyway, when that song was originally out, he would sometimes play it, but a lot of times he would play it live at the end of his broadcast as a little putting your kids to sleep kind of song. It was always one of his favorite songs.
1: <laughs> beautiful lullaby about... Be- well,
3: beautiful lullaby yeah. about ki- about killing. yes, Murdering your wife. Yes, and so I think... In general, right, what's going on on this record is these are some very old country songs reimagined by Willie Nelson into some kind of narrative. And what he's trying to do is and what he succeeded at doing is bringing them to a whole new audience in the 1970s. This was released in 1975, but a lot of these songs date back to the 50s and some even a little bit before that. So in Willie's career, what it does is it establishes him as not just a writer and a performer, but now as an interpreter of music. And we were sort of opining as to how he's put out so many darn records over the course of his career. Well, yeah, he does go into the studio quite frequently, of course, but a lot of what he's doing is interpreting music. Mm-hmm. His, his stated favorite singer of all time, does anyone want to take a funny guess?
1: Snoop Dogg himself I don't know <laughs> Burt Bacharach
3: <laughs> no Frank Sinatra was always ah, his okay. uh, his singing ah, idol all right. and I think in a lot in some ways he has modeled his career a little bit off of a guy like Frank Sinatra did in terms of always looking to bring those old songs back to reinterpret them in his voice and debut them to a new audience so in, in that sense it was successful
0: I will say this Willie Nelson of a very different stripe but also kind of a delivery man Mm-hmm. Um, he has a very unique timbre oh, and yeah, a very yeah. unique sense of where to put the, yeah. the yes the, the rhythm his, yeah his, the his, his like
4: rhythmic phrasing is very unique and very idiosyncratic yeah
0: I um, remember learning about Teatro which is still my favorite one oh, so album um, even after listening that's so fantastic um, but one of the things they talked about is how hard it was to try to get the backup vocals when they were doing the the doubled harmonies they had um yeah uh Lou harris Mm -hmm. i think was doing the because he would never sing it the same way twice and she'd be (laughs) like okay well i'm trying to double you because they were trying to do a lot of it like live and she was like i'm trying to double you here but you're just not singing the same way twice so she's behind the beat a lot from him because she's sort of waiting for him to come in a whole bunch
3: but it comes out great right and Even Teatro, we should point out, which is a great record from the early 90s, I want to say, from yeah. Willie Nelson, is some of the songs on Teatro are some of his oldest written songs that he himself was trying to revive and reinterpret, some of the stuff that wasn't successful. It's a never-ending loop. Mm-hmm. It is.
1: Him. He's only got four you know, songs. There, he just it, continually releases It's funny releases you them. say
4: that because when I was listening to this record, there was a song specifically that stuck out. I don't know if it's... Uh, just as i am or denver it's, it's later in the album where there's this piano tone and i recognize it as a piano tone from teatro and it immediately made me think like yeah that's cool like the producer of teatro like clearly is not only looking forward but like looking into the past right he's 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 showing willie nelson sort of like no i'm i get it like i know what you're going for here right it's very hip
3: so So let's talk a little bit about Willie's background. As it happens, I read Willie's fairly recent biography this past week. And so I have a fair amount of information. Some things I was interested to learn. He's from Abbott, Texas, a very small town, kind of outside of Waco. His mother is three-quarters Cherokee. I don't know if anyone's surprised to learn that. But he was raised entirely by his grandparents. His parents remained alive for much of his life, but they divorced and moved away from Texas shortly after he was born and he was raised by his grandparents. <laughs>
1: they just both left. It wasn't yeah. just one of them. They were both like, we're yeah. out. They had to ramble. <laughs> here's, here's.
0: <laughs> did they come back later in life when he had some money? No, no. That's they always were a, a thing. No.
3: They were like a part of his life, and he's, he's not bitter about it. And we should say, this is maybe an entree to saying, a big part of Willie Nelson's music, in my mind, we talk about separating the art from the artist when the artist is a dick. But Willie Nelson is such a lovable, chilled-out, zen character that it is yeah. hard not to frame everything in within his personality. He even, he's in his 80s, mind you. I think this past year, just this past year, he had an interview on Conan O'Brien's podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, go listen to it, because he's funny, he's sharp, he's fast. its It's kind of mind-blowing. He he is still
4: puffing tough too. Oh yeah.
3: Oh yeah. I saw
4: yeah. I saw a video of him it was a video of him performing something with uh Brandy Carlyle and it showed like a bunch of the them like on the bus like rehearsing the song getting ready. It's probably like 2015 the video was from. And like he's just sitting on the bus like working on this tune with her just burning <laughs> like non-stop and it's like dang it
3: <laughs> so so it's another good point that he credits marijuana and the switch from alcohol and cigarettes to marijuana which happened somewhere in his 20s i believe with chilling him way the heck out when he was a drinker he was also kind of an addictive personality with that and it, he got in bar fights and he was much more of an angry drunk and it was not working for him and then he discovered marijuana and he immediately was like oh this agrees with me much much better and <laughs> leaned into it so hard and of course was an early advocate for legalization you know so he's,
0: he's been well, on that, that train for a long time. That was like a That was a a dangerous time to be doing that. And that's still you go to jail for years for simple possession of marijuana back then.
3: We're talking about the 1950s. Yeah, exactly. And it was not hip in country music by a long shot. And so this is this is a you know, Willie's always made he's always defined himself a little as someone who is not he wouldn't like to be called a country musician. He doesn't he loves music. He doesn't believe in these distinctions of genre and he's never quite fit with the Nashville mold or the Nashville sound machine that we've for talked sure. about previously. So that's definitely a part of this story. Because he grew up in in that part of Texas, he was extremely influenced by unsurprisingly gospel music, church music. Some of the earliest gigs were playing in the church and I should mention that his sister is the piano player in the band and played with him for I decades did see that. and decades. Bobby, right? His sister, Bobby, who's his older sister, and who Willie Nelson has said time and time again, she's the music- musician in the family. Like he considers her the much better musician. They've played together nearly their entire lives. I'm and pretty she's been sure a part she was touring, touring band with forever. him
4: up until fairly recently, too. I mean, maybe she's yeah. still on tour, but she was in the band. Um, you know,
1: that's but, his. Oh, wait, she's the older sister. Older, he's a couple of years older. Yep. Right now, Jesus. Christ.
3: <laughs> yeah so rocking that piano at 92 he's one of these guys that kept a very similar band once he kind of locked in so some of his early experiments in nashville though actually we'll we'll get to that momentarily and we'll talk about the band got his first guitar when he was six and i like this because it relates to an anecdote with phil first guitar was a first guitar was a stella
1: from sears What what is that? Can you explain a style? Uh, when
4: I was in college, uh, I acquired one way or another this parlor guitar. It was like you know, two thirds scale. It was tight. It was a scaled down okay. guitar, and I would play it constantly, uh, and. You know, nobody else liked it in the house. Uh, (laughs) uh, You would just noodle uh, on it
0: for hours in the middle of anything going on. Like you'd be holding a conversation with somebody just noodling on it the entire time. Can you just put that down for like five minutes so we can talk here? We're trying to hash out some bills or something. (laughs) Um, One thing I wanted to point out, by the way, I just looked it up. Uh, Bobby Lee Nelson, uh, she died five days ago as of recording. This. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. That's terrible. Just died. Yeah. Just
3: died. Oh. Well, very sad. She was, like I said, a part of his recording and touring band for a very long time. And they were very close maybe especially because their parents were gone. They were raised by their grandparents, like I said, and they kind of grew up playing music, having a family band. And then later, once Willie Nelson got some traction as a performer, he assembled his own band. Of course, he asked his sister to come play, and she played with him on this album. She played with him all the way through at least Teatro. I think she continued touring with him like, consistently throughout, all the way up until very recently. So that's that's very sad to hear. That's cool. So a couple other notes on the musical influences that I think are important to understand. You know, one is... That where he grew up in Texas, we have first gospel music, second music from south of the border from Mexico. So you definitely get some Mexican kind of influenced guitar stuff on here in particular. And then also he had a lot of Czechoslovakian there's a big Czechoslovakian community there, so he was kind of into Czech polkas.
4: Yeah, that, no, no, I, I've, I've heard about this, that that what we think of as sort of like uh, mariachi music has its roots in like polka and German music, right? I
1: could hear yeah, that. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a, a bit oompa mm-hmm.
3: in there as well. Right, right. So speaking of guitar, can you guess, because he was never into these barriers of, well, I'm from Texas, so I have to be a country musician, or I like country music, so that's what I have to play. Can we guess who his favorite guitar player is? Andres Segovia.
0: Chet Atkins? <laughs> Jimi Hendrix.
3: Django Reinhardt.
0: Ah, all right. It's Latched really-
3: on to Django Reinhardt, gypsy, European gypsy uh, guitar player. I think he was born in Belgium, right, from, was touring in the 30s and 40s, I suppose. And I think he particularly was admired him because Django, as we've talked about before in this podcast, was in an accident when he was young, and lost the use of most of the use of two of his fingers on his fret hand, and kind of fought back through that, developed his own style. So Willie Nelson's guitar playing has I think you can relate it if you listen to those two players. Mm-hmm. Pretty think, think easily.
4: Yeah, I think there's some I, I, I see that for sure.
3: Someone called him Django with one finger, which he, <laughs> which he then deemed the highest compliment of his life.
0: <laughs> but anyway. He does a lot of two note runs. Like, dude, yeah. he does. He so,
3: does. But anyway, he, he drew this parallel early on. He said that he didn't think anyone else was seeing between the jazz that guys like Django were playing and Django's famous partner in music was a, a violin player called Stefan Grappelli. And he was like, that sounds a lot like country music it's a guitar and a fiddle, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a similar like, oh, interplay yeah, yeah. going on there. Anyway, so he spent a fair amount of time just bouncing around trying to find work as a radio DJ. He all the while he was writing songs, trying to sell them. He actually had this anecdote about how he used to walk around bar rooms like in Fort Worth and just play his songs and offer them to people for 10 bucks. So he like sh- there's this anecdote about him showing up. He plays crazy, he plays nightlife. He plays ain't it funny how time slips away and he's like He's asking him for a gig to play there, and the guy's like, "No, we don't really do musicians." He's like, "All right, do you want these songs for ten bucks each?" The guy's like, "These songs are too good for that, man. Like, I'd be robbing you." <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "Please hold well, on to them."
0: This is a club promoter with integrity, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, 10 exactly. box
4: is so little,
0: <laughs> and so yeah, even in like nineteen fifties, yeah, that's yeah. not anything.
3: Yeah, exactly. And those all became huge hits for him later. But apparently, that guy, yeah, that guy had scruples. It's hard to tell if these anecdotes are all filtered through Willie's worldview, which is very positive about everything. <laughs> Eventually, he ends up in Nashville, as all, you know, aspiring songwriters did at the time. Ended up selling some of these songs like crazy and mm-hmm. nightlife to other, and they were hits for other big country stars. And you know, Wait, he's,
1: crazy is in "Crazy for Feelings"? Mm-hmm. So yes,
3: lonely. Patsy Cline made it famous.
1: Really? Yes. He wrote he, that. Wow. Correct. He's, there's that,
0: that story that he tells in the the storytellers with him and Johnny Cash where he says, and maybe he's being funny about it, but he said that originally it was called stupid. And it's like, stupid <laughs> for feeling so lonely. <laughs> like It's like, yeah, they told me to change it to crazy because it sounded more euphonious. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, they were right. That, that was, yeah. <laughs>
4: That, by yes. the way, is great. Uh, that, that Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash Storytellers, oh, for anybody who hasn't checked that out. So good. It's great. It's literally Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash playing about 20 of their tunes, uh, and they didn't learn them. So that's also part of the fun. <laughs> but they know them, he's, but they didn't he's like, not a big, you can tell yeah. they did not rehearse at all.
3: That's cool. <laughs> That's awesome. So yeah, he's definitely not into being, he's anti-polished, right? So anyway, he sells some songs in Nashville. He eventually gets a recording contract in Nashville. He puts out some some music, but the whole time they're not allowing him creative freedom. They're In his mind, they're overproducing him, and he's not really having a lot of success as a performer. He goes back and re- records some of those old tunes that he wrote and does a bunch more. He probably puts out 10 or 15 albums in in that area and the whole time he's touring with this band that includes his sister, this his drummer, this guy Paul English, who he wrote the song Me and Paul about, who's Mm -hmm. like his long, lifelong friend and drummer, and this other harmonica player who I think he played with until very, very recently or is still playing with called Mickey Raphael. And that was like his touring band. He loved those guys, but for whatever reason the Nashville machine was like, no, you can't have that band in the studio. Sorry. Like we got our own way of doing things.
0: Go back and look at just everybody do yourself a favor and look at the the cover of the first Willie Nelson album, and then I wrote, "They have him in like a suit and tie with like slick back hair with like Brill Cream. He's so not Willie Nelson. He's so like sh- obviously shoved into this mold. And looks like uh, a CPA, Rob. You will appreciate this. <laughs> he looks like <laughs> right. Oh
3: uh, yeah, yes, yes, yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. totally. Yes, somebody we used to work with. Uh, he also looks like he's saying "good." <laughs> <laughs> this is the one that's called. And you said, Sorry. "And
4: then I wrote Tom."
0: And then I wrote, "Yeah,
4: and then, yeah, man." Texas Willie is similar.
3: So yeah. yeah, that was that was Nashville. Nashville had a, a mold they, they wanted to fit you in. They oh, had a totally. they had a production method. In fact, he had uh, I think Chet Atkins producing some of those records, who he greatly admired as both a player and a producer. But he really just never felt like it was a great fit for him. And so, you know, they'd add strings and horn arrangements and background vocalists to everything they did to make it more commercially viable. Think, think Ring of Fire by Johnny Cash, which is a great tune, but it has a lot of, like, extra added production stuff as opposed to just being mm-hmm. a simple uh, pr- country production, let's say. And so he has this revelation, probably partially through his love of marijuana, that – and he tries LSD at some point, of course, too. He's like, hey, wait maybe the hippies would actually like me better than the country, than the traditional country folks.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
3: And, you know, kind of thinks about this, ends up playing some concerts down around Austin and basically relocates to Austin, realizing that this is a this is a better fit for him in terms of the audience and the vibe and the kind of weirdness.
1: And that would have been in the 60s if you're talking kind of the hippie This would have been the culture.
3: late, this was the late 60s. He was still under contract on, by, in Nashville, but leading up to Red-Headed Stranger, what we have here is Basically, he was on Atlantic as a record label. They unceremoniously drop all their country artists and, like, shutter their Nashville, uh, Nashville studio or whatever, relieving him of his contract. And so now he's a free agent. He had had some minor – he was starting to gain a little bit of traction with songs like Shotgun Willie and Whiskey River and things like that. And then Columbia, the biggest record label in the world – Agrees to sign him, and he sadly says, Only if I have full creative control, and they agree to it. And the first thing that comes out is Redheaded Stranger. So Those
1: fools. Those
3: <laughs> fools. The, yeah, those idiots. So this is his 18th official release of 97, as I mentioned. It came that's out, crazy. It came out in, in. Wait, i in
1: used to 18 of 97.
3: I mean, that's, yes.
4: uh, but that, seriously, that's a record like every seven months for like 40 years, right? <laughs>
3: He's been going more than 40 years, yeah. dude. He's been going like 60 years. <laughs> what year is it? Yeah, man.
1: He started putting he was out born records. In 33. Yeah, he started right?
3: putting out records probably in like 1955 or something. So
1: Jesus.
3: Crazy. Anyway, this was released in May 1975. A year later it was certified gold. Ten years from then it's double platinum. It reached number one on Billboard's Top Country albums. It remained on the charts for 43 weeks and it is a wow. long right. lead-up, but it is a concept album about a man who sees his wife with another man, kills her, then is haunted by guilt, so roams around killing other people because he's sad.
4: Well, that <laughs> well, explains does. why it felt like one long song to me.
0: I mean, in many ways, it literally was one song chopped up and spread throughout it was. the album. It
3: really was. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Wait, wait, All wait. Right. So, so, so wait
4: one second. So just to be clear... If I see my wife with another man, murdering her will not alleviate any feelings I feel <laughs> when I see them.
1: No, no, but continue to fill the murder hole as best you can.
4: Mm, okay.
1: <laughs> I didn't really. Part of the reason why my little tweet intro there was so hot was that I wrote it uh, after listening to this two times and then I listened to it another 12 while reading the lyrics, while reading you know, some other articles written on it, and I started to develop a little bit more of an appreciation of the story. It's kind of cool that he's searching for a way to forgive himself. There are aspects that we may get into here, which is side A, side B. Side A is all about the murder, the cheating. Side B is I need to figure out a way to get over my guilt here. I need to learn to live with this because obviously I got all run in jail. Right. It, yeah, it's, it's it's a cool story. Yeah. Although I didn't I didn't concept... catch the story
4: in that, you know, I listened to the record several times, but you know, it was it was sort of background music other than a couple of real heartbreakers.
1: <laughs> concept albums crack me up because on an album like this where you can write I don't know 600 words and you've got a concept versus like if you want to write a book with a concept you <laughs> do a lot of work there mm-hmm. a concept album is like I have an idea where a guy murders his wife he feels bad about it and then falls in love with somebody else and forgives himself like that's that was 20 that was 20 words and I, I have to need more than that for a concept
3: although I feel yeah I agree with what you're saying to a certain extent I think the record is achingly beautiful it has it's fragile it's it's right in your ear it really sets a mood. It's an amazing background music, but I think it stands up to listening. It doesn't sound like a lot of other things, and I like it for that reason. That said, it's quite short, and one thing I was a little disappointed by on Digging In was learning that he didn't write most of these songs.
1: Right! Yeah, and that was a little right. bit
3: of a bummer, but I think that must be interpreted through... Like I said, Willie Nelson has, has always wanted to buck convention. He's written hundreds of songs. There's no doubt about it. And he's got some great tunes.
4: He doesn't need to prove to you that he can write some tunes. He does not need to write.
3: <laughs> he doesn't need to prove anything. Exactly. <laughs> Instead, he was thinking, let me take Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, which I liked and I don't think got its due before, and let me bring it to a new audience, this old style of country, mm-hmm. and let me make it a hit. Uh, And same with something like Redheaded Stranger, which had a really brief run on the radio, but it was just more like a personal song to him and other little tidbits like that that set a mood that he was trying to set. And it's worth mentioning, too, that a few years after this, maybe Willie Nelson's even more successful record is called Stardust, where he goes back and covers songs from the 1930s, like All of Me and the song Stardust by Hoagy Carmichael and stuff like that. So he really leaned into this persona as an interpreter of music, I think starting around this point.
1: That's funny you say that because that was my reaction too. After starting to let this album grow on me, and again, I read some of the backstory about the the story the album is telling, I came to the Wikipedia page for the album last night expecting to just see Nelson, 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 Nelson. And I got to, I was like, oh crap. Like, yeah, there's a whole lot of people involved. And I think three of the 15 songs are... Those kind of traditional songs from the '30s that are instrumentals, and yeah, it's it it's interesting. He's not trying
3: to hide it though. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, right, it's, it's a right. it's a clear
0: choice. And they all all the songs do serve the purpose of conveying sadness in their tone, not even in their lyrics, because. My first couple of runs through listening to this, I was doing other things, and I wasn't paying attention to the storyline. But I was like, this is sad. This is really sad. I know this is sad based upon the chord choices that you have and the production (laughs) choices that you've (laughs) made. I
3: think think it's a great example of how much you can do with three chords in so many cases with these really, really sparse arrangements. So let's talk a little bit about the recordings, uh, recording sessions, right? So the record company... Gave him complete creative freedom. They did not know it was coming back. They gave him a sixty thousand dollar budget. They wrote him a check for sixty grand. Now I've heard a couple different reports of this, but Willie Nelson, in his own autobiography, says that the sessions cost a total of two thousand dollars, and <laughs> the and that rest he, he spent on wheat. He, well, yeah, he says he spent it on equipment and weed, but yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, to make the touring band better, because he was really into touring at that time. That was That's always been his livelihood, and of course, he's also well-known for the song On the Road Again, which hadn't been written yet, but he's made his life as a touring musician. And so, done really cheaply at a really small place, he hands it in, and lo and behold, Columbia record execs go, the demo sounds pretty cool, like, when are you going to give us the finished product? He's like, no, it is, it's finished. <laughs> And they kind of fought. Apparently, they fought kind of tooth and nail to say, like, no, this this is no good. You got to polish it up. This sounds like it was recorded in someone's living room. We can't release this. No one's going to like it. And he was basically, like, stood his ground. He's like, fuck you. You gave me complete creative control. We're releasing this. And, of course, it went on to be this huge mm-hmm.
4: hit. It gave me, like, easy beat vibes, right? And I actually, like, sort of went and looked up, like, what were the top singles? Like, what was the height of production in 1975, you know? And also, when did the Tascam 388 come out? Which came out (laughs) 10 years later,
2: because I was like, is it possible? Uh, (laughs) I I
4: actually did look it up. But, like, this, like, other big hit, like, mainstream stuff would have been, like, Fame by David Bowie, Bad Company, uh, You Know, Feel Like Making Love, Sister Golden Hair rhinestone cowboy philadelphia freedom like those were the hits in 1975 it's a way different production level so
3: left like definitely way a left turn, right well and even from the country if you look at the country charts one of the ones i pulled out that you guys might know and we can drop a snippet of it in here if the audience doesn't know it is the john denver song thank god i'm a country boy yeah sure was was on the radio and a hit on the countryside at that time and even that is so produced compared to this so it's a real left turn. We'll we'll drop let's drop the John Denver song in just a little snippet of it right here so you get a little sense of the uh contrast. I
2: and my wife be very
3: good. So I
0: John Denver's just jazzed up folk. He's not really country. I, I'm very convinced that John Denver's not real country.
3: I bet Willie Nelson would agree with you. But also, <laughs> he doesn't like that term or any, any genre terms. So anyway, so yeah, it sounds like it was recorded in a living room, right? It was basically recorded live. There were very few overdubs. It gives it this intimate, like it's a show in your house kind of feel. Mm-hmm. and And it feels sad and downplayed in this way that a lot of music doesn't achieve. So just in terms of the mood it sets... I do think it's a classic for that reason.
1: That's really interesting because there's one of the tracks on here I wrote down. it's. I, I couldn't believe it was true. There is a ton of noise on the mic. If you listen to <laughs> yeah. like headphones, it sounds like people are moving around the room or moving the microphone itself <laughs> while the musicians are playing. And then he comes in and starts singing. So it's not... It's not distracting. I'm just an audiophile, and I, I pick up on that stuff. But yeah, it, it, it does have that feeling.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in some of the specifics where it's just like something comes in in like one ear, and you're like, "What the yeah. hell is that sound?" <laughs> there's
4: a there's a moment on the record. It's actually like one of my favorite moments. I, I I wish I had written it down, but again, it's later in the record. I think it's maybe on like down yonder. Um, There's this two part harmony and. It's just a little out, and it's kind of in and out, but it's like loud. It's like be You can. It's like you can hear it like vibrating against itself, and you're just like, "Well, that's about as real as it gets," you know. <laughs> like.
1: There's only a couple harmonies on the entire album, too, and it's Willie on Willie, which is pretty hot. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah. He's not in. He's definitely not into overdubs, but the, the occasional one he chooses is kind of interesting. I've noted some yeah. some good ones. Okay, so that's that's kind of the setting. It went on to be this huge success. It's on everyone's, in every country fan, puts it in the top 10 of country albums of all time. And it was just hugely successful. It brought these songs to a nude audience successfully. And I think that's a good segue into just talking about the songs we agreed we were going to talk about. So let's get into it with the, it's the first song on the record, but it also is a reappearing theme. So it kind of reoccurs multiple times throughout the record. So we're, All those are fair game. It's called The Time of the Preacher.
2: It was the time of the preacher When the story began Of the choice of a lady And the love of a man How he loved her so dearly He went out of his mind When she left him for someone she'd left behind And he cried like a babe
0: Thoughts, Tom? Well, you know... This song, In Isolation, seemed incomplete to me the first time that I heard it. And I think that that's something you could say for most of the songs on this album. They don't necessarily stand up alone just because of its length. And I think because of its, um, you know, it is it's a part of a whole. And so, listening to it as like a single or something like that, it really seems incomplete. And it just, Adam, I think you and I both had the the same thought of like, I was going back and being like, did
1: I like accidentally
0: hit next or something like that? on right. Some of these songs? Spotify like, set yeah. on
1: repeat because I keep hearing yeah. this like every four minutes. What the hell's going on?
0: But one thing I will say about this song is that I like it a lot. It's got it's got the great country changes that. You know, mm-hmm. are just they just feel different than pop changes or blues changes, and they're a bit. I and mean, it's the same chords; he's using the same three or four chords, but the way that they're arranged and put in, the time that you spend on each chord, um, it gives it that country feel. But what the hell did they do to get that tone out of Trigger his his guitar? That sound it sounds amazing. It sounds, it sounds amazing. Sounds so I agree.
3: Good. His guitar always sounds great, and it is always that one guitar.
1: The intro went those there's like a a series of five chords there's a steel string acoustic guitar when he starts playing i didn't realize this i think he plays nylon string on the upper three right so it's a totally again i'm not a super country head but in my in my mind country is steel string acoustic guitars that's what country is and then you've got classical guitar which is its own thing, but he uses these nylon strings that are typically used on classical guitars. So it's got a very distinct Mm -hmm. sound, especially in the context of a country album.
0: Well, here's the thing. I actually, I don't think this is a country album. I think this is a western album, (laughs) and they used to be called country and western. Careful, Willie's going to get pissed if you're putting (laughs) him in a box. And like, this feels like a western album more so than the country than the western album. But like, listen, I love westerns. Westerns are like my favorite movie genre. I just I just recently re-listened to uh, or listened to for the first time, but I'd read it before. Lonesome Dove, which if you guys have not read Lonesome Dove, yes, oh my god, Um, wow, yeah. But yeah, this this just felt like the west. And I, that's certainly what he was going for, mm-hmm. yes But like, I was like, oh, country and western Yeah, this is the western side of it, not the country side I
4: don't it. know if this is a Willie Nelson comment Or if this is just like a general late 60s, early 70s production comment I love how they mix drums at this period in time Where, like, you know, everything <clears throat> now, it's like it's a big drum set and It's right in front of you in three-dimensional space, you know It's like you're behind the kit this is just like oh, I'll put the snare drum over on the left-hand side and the hi hat somewhere else. Like there's no there, there's no attempt to make it sound like a drum kit or a person playing the drums. It's just like oh, I'll just put these anywhere, you know. I'll just tuck this guy over here and we'll put, you know, I'll put the bass. I'll hard pan the bass to the left and the kick drum to the right, and you know, it's just can it's we so all can we
0: all agree? Can we all agree? Easiest drum gig ever. <laughs> right on. <yeah. laughs> it must've been the easiest. The drummer is probably like. Really? This okay. I you know I can do more if you want. Like I'm I'm, I'm a accomplished drummer. I'm a professional drummer, but okay, no, I guess I'll just go boom, chock, chock, boom. Okay, he's tach, tach,
4: like, No, that, well, there that is that on the floor and those those rim clicks will do. It's
3: a nice little tambourine come in, I know <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. this must be doing. Yeah, with the shake kicks in. We
1: we call that a drop,
3: Rob. Oh, right, yeah.
1: <laughs> when the tambourine drops in. The tambourine
3: drops. So that is that's that's his rambling buddy though, Paul English. To be clear, that he wrote "Me and Paul" okay. about that he's been with forever, and that yeah, he immortalized in that great song.
0: That song is fantastic. That's that is that's probably like top fifty songs for me of all time. I love "Me and Paul." Again, it's just evocative of like a fun lifestyle, which when you break it down actually is horrible. But like it's he makes it sound <laughs> fun, <laughs> getting arrested and getting blind drunk in Buffalo and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, busted in Laredo.
3: Yeah. Okay, I also thought this had some of the nicer guitar playing on the record. I like Willie Nelson as a lead guitar player, I have to say. I've really come to his style. He's not as good as Django, of course, but I, I do like the style a lot, and I think it's, it's, um, it's beautiful in a weird ram, ramshackle kind of way, mm-hmm. but I don't always think he hits the mark, even for himself, on this record. But on this song, I feel like he's, it's a good example
4: I, I I know what you're saying, and that I know we've joked about. I wanted to make this a Jimmy Page joke with with Adam, right? But like, I know we've joked about Jimmy Page and his like his sort of sloppiness. This is a whole different level of sloppiness, right? Like, it works Will, here. Willie Nelson is more yeah, it's 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 a it's an irreverence, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's fat. He's great, but he definitely has that mindset of like, I would I don't care if a great take has a bad note. Great. that's the yeah. one I want you know
0: like, I think it's more like um, you know when you look at it's like the uncanny valley you look at animation and when it's close to a human face but not quite there it's way more offensive than when it's just a whole different thing yeah yeah, yeah like I could take this whole yeah. different thing yeah.
3: well also I think it tracks with his vocal style that we talked about of phrase weird phrasing you know coming in at weird rhythms that's how his guitar playing is too
4: it does feel like an extension of his voice
3: so my complaint about the tune which was alluded to earlier by you guys is i need a little more to make it a song. Like i think i think i love everything he's doing here. I understand this in the context of a concept album as a theme that recurs and you kind of have to string all those together. Think i don't know, Pigs on the Wing from Pink Floyd's Animals or something any musical, any any Broadway musical that has several reprises of a certain song, things like that. I'm fine with that aspect of it. But in general, I think the songs could have just been stretched out a little longer. And the fact that this whole record only clocks in at 32 minutes. For 16, I'm sorry, 15 songs. (laughs) Right. I just, it would have been so easy to just extend it a little further. I I guess he was just really aiming for economical with consistency. But I I wanted it to kind of go on a little longer.
0: Well, you you make the great point about the reprise in a musical. The reprise works because they give you the full song at first and then they tease parts of it later. Yeah. <laughs> they don't give you a right. part and then a part and then a part. They give you the whole and then they tease the parts. And so yeah, that's why I was sort of like this is just this just doesn't stand up on its own. If you put two more verses in it and stretch this out to what like a 3 minute song or something right. like that still not a long song. It would have been it would have been a great song. I but agree. But maybe then I would have been tired of it by the third time it comes around. You know, I still I, I still like it
3: a lot. I'm just saying that would be my That would be my complaint, is how short everything, kind of everything is, but I like this one in particular. I I do think it's a great album opener, but it could have gone on a little longer.
4: With the exception of Can I Sleep in Your Arms, I don't think anything cracks five minutes, might not even crack four.
3: No, right, there's tons of stuff that's like under a minute ten. Sure,
0: I could I could see why Columbia was like, we can't release this. What's the single? What are we going to put are out for single? We going to put out like an eighty four minute song? Can, yeah.
4: can I sleep in your arms? As the harmony I was talking about, too. That's the one where it's like it's the it's near the end of the song. It's Willie on Willie, and it's like, yeah, it's not pitch perfect, but it sounds great. Except it's mixed well, really loud, which goes back to the the the, the mixing style which i just respect the bravery. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, let's talk let's talk um about like because even the idea that they broke all these into different distinct tracks was a choice. He was contemporaries with people like Pink Floyd or I don't know when the first Yes album came out, but there were other bands that were combining songs together into a single track in quotes and just calling them different sections. He definitely could have done that here, right? And then you could, have a, you could have an eight-track album that looked a little beefier when it came to the time. Like Maybe part of what we're reacting to is how we're looking at it in Spotify.
2: Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't
3: have a copy of the LP in front of me. It probably didn't say the track links on the back of it, for instance. <laughs> you know, things like that.
0: You know, Rob, I just looked this up, by the way, because you sort of asked the question, and it blew my mind a little bit, that um, both Fragile and the Yes album came out in 1971. They put Jesus. out two Killer Complex un- album in 1971. Those guys are monsters. If only they had kept yes. it up, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> we could be going back to Reno to see him in another basement.
3: <laughs> okay, let's move it right along here to the next tune on our list. Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain.
2: Blue, I Blue eyes cry in the rain. When we kissed goodbye and part I knew we'd never meet again Love is like a dying young bird And all
3: Okay, Adam, what do you think?
1: I just had I thought this was mediocre. I mean, was this was this released as a single? Cuz I see it's got some of the most Yes. Uh okay, this this was He won yeah, a
3: he actually won a Grammy for best male country vocal performance for this tune. And this is probably one of his most well-known tunes. Yeah.
1: Okay. I mean, he sounds fantastic on it. If I'm going to try to like put myself like, okay, well, you don't want to disagree with all the critics, but I mean, he just sounds great on all these songs. I love his voice. But yeah, this tune, it just didn't. Maybe this was getting to the end of track one, or I'm sorry, side one, and I just wanted something to sink my teeth into a little bit more.
3: I, I don't know. I, I see. I disagree. I think this is the obvious single. I think the songwriting is really great here. I was disappointed to learn Willie Nelson hadn't written it, which is a little unfair. But it was written by a guy called Fred Rose, originally recorded back in 1947 and oh wow okay it's been recorded by hank williams originally it was recorded oh, by geez. this guy roy acuff okay. elvis recorded it after willie but here's an interesting anecdote or tidbit it's known to be the last song elvis presley ever sang in his life Whoa. he's like sang <laughs> wow. it at the piano at his house before he then died Whoa. Wow. Whoa, wow
0: dope <laughs> that's all right
1: yeah all right then <laughs>
0: Uh, so he's not a. Elvis wasn't a bathroom singer. He wasn't singing on the toilet. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> when he, when he
1: croaked. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> did uh, he die you know, taking soon,
0: shit? Tom, it's too too soon, Tom. Uh, too I'm soon. pretty sure he did, yes. Because <laughs> he had all. He had like. He was on a bunch of pills. And he had a terrible diet. And um, I don't know 100% that this is true, but what I have heard is that he was trying to force out a shit. And he had a heart attack while he was trying to do that. He was trying to really work one out.
4: Man, that is. A terrible way to go.
0: I think it happens more than you think it does. Wow. <laughs> than, than one would suspect it does. Just let it happen, guys. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, this song, to me, is, it, we talked about the three-chord um, aspect of it. This is a three-chord song, right? And the reason three chords work in country is because it's not like the sort of hit a chord and hold it. And then you get to the next measure, you hit another chord and hold it. You're kind of jumping back and forth in between the chords, sort of like Mm Beatles-esque, right? Um, And it works well because of that. But it's also, I just think it's driven by a great melody. I think the melody is fantastic. And something
4: I noticed on a lot of these songs, I won't say it happens on this song in particular, but it's definitely like a country device, right? Is they'll just carefully choose when to use the dominant seven chord. Uh, yeah and, and so you know technically they're changing key right but not really because like that one three five that one four five vibe is so ingrained that it just feels like a, it's like a color note right that's in play it's usually highlighted in the melody is like a passing tone. It's cool uh, and it does impart uh, a mood right uh, And it takes some sophistication to navigate right instead of just dropping this like eh, eh, other note in there all the time. <laughs>
3: obnoxiously you mean like the like you mean like the blues does right yeah exactly
0: <laughs> i'm gonna go back and, and amend that I, I apologize i put the note on the wrong track here this is not a three chord song the song has significantly more than three chords and i don't know why even after hearing the song many times i was like oh yeah this song's three chords definitely not three chords but it's uh it's not a ton of chords it's got that little sort of run at the end uh of the um of the the verse the kind of like little bass run but it's not it's still not a ton of chords either way I think my point still stands that like it's it's not a lot of complex chords, but it's, it works because they don't hang on them for a super long time, and they have a great melody. That my point up.
4: stands, too. Dominant seven
1: chords. <laughs> Dominant sevens. <laughs> um, I, You'll be happy to know that UB40 also covered this uh, in 2013. So let me go listen to that, uh, and maybe I'll fall God, in love no. with the song then. All right. How dare you. you? You just can't help falling in love <laughs> right.
0: with this song. I hate that band so much. They're modern
3: interpreters of
0: music. I'm really like,
4: my brain is basically generating that now. It's like happening in my head. Yeah,
0: Yeah, you know exactly what it's. like. I do. It's
4: so sad.
0: Yeah. You guys got that weird kind of voice? Blue ass crying in the rain. Anyway. Um,
3: I love the line, love is like a dying ember. Only memories remain. I think it's a great line. I think the whole performance... You're right, I love Willie Nelson's voice and he is pretty consistent across his recordings with that voice, but this feels very intimate to me. It was recorded, everyone sitting in a circle, like a tight circle in the studio, recorded live, very few overdubs, like most of the record, but it sounds like he's singing right to you. I just, I do think that's kind of special. Well, and yet, they
0: have him
1: so high in the yes. mix.
3: Oh, yeah. His voice is The way mic high. must be so hot. Right? Like. Okay, Speaking of the mix, right, because how close is he staying to that mic, right? Yeah, Speaking close. of the mix, there were some weird choices here that I think, the weird production choices. A couple things. Speaking of the mix, there's the hint of an organ at like yes. 145. It's so low in the mix. Yeah, the guy an organ in the other room, basically. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then exactly one line of his vocal is harmonized. We'll stroll hand in hand again. Just Just comes in once and it's out. Like, I do think these are a lot of purposeful, weird, one-off choices. What about That
0: saved the song for me. That harmony coming in, I was like, this song is crying out for it. when it. When it came in, I was like, oh, my God, this is that harmony that, like, I didn't quite know that I wanted it. I knew I wanted a harmony. I didn't know I wanted the low harmony note, certainly. Mm. But when it came in, I was like, that's just the only note that you could sing there. Yeah, saved the right, song for right.
3: me. And the other thing I wanted to point out, which is, I think, particularly... Unusual for Willie Nelson is the doubled guitar lead-in overdub. Mm, like it's at that. it's at about 108. It's 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 only in there for a second, and it's like this is what they went back for of all the overdubs they could have done. They just put this little thing in there at one oh eight. Let's
1: let's play that right now. Wow. Well done, Rob. Good ear, good ear, sir. So my point is, it's still done with some level of
3: care and interest, that even though such it feels an
4: odd choice,
3: underproduced.
4: <laughs> I wonder if there was just like yeah. a bad note there, and they wanted to do a little like, you know, if you were if you were watching at home, you would see that I slid two mixers up and down <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: in, the air. in the
4: air. Well,
0: you know, we've talked about the the oddness of production choices standing out both on both ends of the spectrum you get something like this which is like super underproduced and then there were like 10 choices that were made and you're like why those 10 <laughs> yes and then you get to the other side with like Chinese democracy by guns and roses where like <laughs> axel Rose spent like a decade on it and he ends up with a what's the famous one where he's like speaks like a vampire for like <laughs> like two lines or something like that good, but I don't want to do like, how many takes do you have that let that ended up on the floor and you stuck with the one when you speak like a vampire for a second? Like, what the hell is your problem? But, like, it, it beggars the imagination how they came to these choices. Like, I just wonder. I wonder what that decision-making process
4: is. Well, yeah. Yeah, we talked about it on Black Sabbath 4. What was the song called? Effects, right? Where it's basically uh-huh. just, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. four yeah. dudes su- super high on cocaine, like, throwing a necklace at a guitar. Naked. Like, throwing yeah. stuff like at how- a guitar. <laughs> Yeah, how did that make it all the way through the chain, right?
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> Every time somebody
0: listened to the album and they questioned it, they were just like, can I offer you some cocaine?
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's keep it rolling right along. Next song on our list chronological on the album is the title track, "Redheaded headed Stranger. Let's play another snippet of that.
2: was at sunset. The stranger went free of course. Or you can't hang a man For killing a woman Who's trying to steal your horse This is the tale of the red-headed stranger And if he should pass your way Stay out of the path of the raging black stag And don't lay a hand on the bay Don't cross it, don't boss him He's wild in a sorrow.
0: He's riding. Hiding. Did any of you guys listen to the Arthur Smith version of the song? No. I did? No. It is like 50% too fast. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's Ooh. so fast. And then it has that. The terrible country trope of like a group vocal of men and women singing the chorus, mm. but there's but it's so fast that there's like no there's like no break, like don't toss them, don't toss them, t- t- t-. like it's it's so rushed, and I'm like, oh, it sounded terrible, and then I could see why he wanted to reinterpret it.
3: Yeah, well, because that one is not on Spotify, as far as I can tell, but I did find it on YouTube. Let's drop a little clip of that in here. Come your
0: way, step out of
2: the path of the raging black stallion, and don't lay a hand on the bay. Don't cross him, don't boss him, don't boss him. He's, wild he's wild he's riding and hiding his pain. Don't fight him, don't spline him, just wait till tomorrow, and maybe he'll ride on again.
3: Yeah. Uh, I I agree. Uh, Hearing that old version really helped me understand why he needed to redo it. Because it's... I I like the song a lot. It was interesting that it was written... Or somewhat, somewhat interestingly, it was written by a woman called Edith Lindemann. Which I thought... And this is back in the 50s. And I thought that was interesting that there was a woman writing country music. She was originally written for Perry Como. Our favorite Perry Como. I feel like he's come up a couple times, maybe making fun of him. Although I actually think he's great. See magic moments. But anyway, he never sang it because of a contract dispute or something. It ended up being recorded by this guy that that Tom just mentioned, guitar boogie Smith or whatever. And it, yeah, it sounds coked out.
0: It really does. And it doesn't get across any of the pathos that is in the song with the Willie version. And it's funny that it really just takes slowing it down and having a guy like Willie put his voice behind it, um, you know, to make you really feel for that multiple murderer
1: right yeah yeah, (laughs) and this is i feel like this is the only one that is is actually uh, consolidated tells a story like in a standard song format like oh here's a couple verses that tells a story and then the resolution in the last verse will end with a chorus the end it's a song (laughs) i feel like this is the only (laughs) one on the album that actually does that well that's right and
3: this he built the album around this song and then didn't to your point, didn't exactly try to rival it with a single song that told a similar story, but instead built around it with all these little mini songs or yeah, other songs from the sense. past. But sure. so, yeah, let's recount this story. So I do think it's a great song, especially as Willie performs it. I love the line. He's wild in his sorrow. He's riding and hiding his pain. I think that's a nice line they got off there. But basically, he not only he finds his wife with another man, kills her and him, then he's then he's bummed out understandably racked yeah. with some kind of guilt so he goes up
1: sure. goes a rambling throughout the country mm-hmm. <laughs> on his stallion as well as as the the bay right trailing the stallion, trailing right? his
3: wife's horse behind them and then when someone right. presumably reaches out to pet the horse he kills that woman immediately yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah.
4: You ever like overreact and yell at your kids, and then you're like, Oh, god, you know, I, I sort of crossed the line there, and you have to sit down, you know, and take like a little break, right? Right, right. you know, can you imagine if your kid then came over and like, Get the fuck here, you was like, out you know, like that's basically what happened, right? Right,
0: if you ever, yeah, he clearly has learned no lessons yeah, yeah, at exactly. all, right? he's not evolved as a human yeah. being, and cl- pretty clear cut case of murder, pretty clear cut, right? Yeah, and but somehow they're just like, Oh, no, it's cool, man, she. Touched your she horse, was trying <laughs> to steal your right. horse. But I, so.
3: I obviously, we can't it. hang a man for that. Yeah, you were
0: just—I <laughs> mean, you were just drinking with her too, because they're like hanging right. out in the saloon. He buys her a drink, and then she comes outside and like takes the reins of his horse. Maybe she thought they were going to go bang in the woods somewhere or something like that. He just <laughs> fires mine right to her chest. <laughs> She's like, yeah,
1: don't touch my horse. <laughs> oh my yeah. right. But it was her fault because nobody told her. Definitely. Well, To she had, avoid the red-headed street According <laughs> to the song,
3: she had greedy eyes. So, Oh. Yeah, I miss well, that. Right. That I mean, tells the whole story. I mean, that's,
4: that's, that's a tale as old as time. So.
1: That'll hold up in court, Your Honor. He's greedy eyes. shot <laughs> him. Well, all right. Here's some money for your troubles. Be on your way.
0: I mean, it is it is a bold move to write a song about woman murdering because that was like even in the old West they were like no women and children. Like you kill other guy, other men, of course, but like women and children, yeah. those are kind of off limits. But. Apparently but, not,
4: apparently
3: not. But
0: adultery Tom, and horse
3: thieving, you know.
4: By the way, I have a new concept record coming out. It's about how Jeffrey Epstein wasn't that bad of a guy. You, I can't wait for you guys
1: to check <laughs> it out. It's going to be pretty cool. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Tom, I was going to ask, as a Western fan, have you seen the movie? Because I went, I went on YouTube oh. a little bit. I first saw Willie doing uh, a version of, of one of these tunes on Austin City Limits, which, by the way, Austin City Limits must have been around for, what, 50 years <laughs> yeah, or something? It is great, great to see some of those old shows. Anyway, uh, but there's a movie starring Willie Nelson as well. I wasn't sure I, if you had seen it. I, I, I saw it. Is he, is he the red-headed oh, stranger?
3: He is, and this became his nickname from this point on because he has red hair, real red hair. I think it's one of the reasons he liked the song originally. And he, this is later in the 80s. He kind of tossed around the idea of getting a movie produced based on this whole album. And eventually got it made. You know, got some other backers, whatever. And then he stars in it, and Morgan Fairchild is the the, yeah, the wife it's that, that he kills. Right, right. Yeah, it's absolutely terrible movie. Just to be clear,
1: I was gonna say, can he act, yeah. or is it pretty or, pretty
0: rough? Can you buy him as a rage filled murderer? He's probably just sitting there, like with a doob in his mouth, just like I mean, you know, love is love, you know, like why not share it
3: around?
1: <laughs>
3: yeah, the the thing the movie is definitely not worth watching sorry willie but in his in his book he he's actually acted in a bunch of films and he's none of them have been successful but he seems very sanguine about it She's like yeah well what are you going to do I had fun doing it you know moving on
0: <laughs> he, was awesome. in, uh, he was in he was in half baked famously great cameo on that that
3: was a, that was a great cameo i agree but the one thing i noticed about this song or i didn't notice until i read a little blurb about the songwriter is that the theme is colors maybe that's obvious but there's a red headed stranger There's Blue Rock, Montana. There's a yellow-haired lady. There's a raging black stallion. It's like, this song writes itself. (laughs) Blue-eyes crying in the rain, right? Right. (laughs) just go. Exactly. Okay, so a couple production notes I noticed. One is, the end of every chorus, the turnaround thing, goes two rounds. I like that. I think that's a cool little... Mm -hmm. It's a very little minor device, but I think it's interesting. Here's something... That I just heard today. The verse where he goes into the tavern in the lyrics is where the piano, like the saloon piano playing, starts up.
2: That's interesting. I like it. Came down to the tavern, looked up the stranger there. He bought her a drink and he gave her some money. He just didn't seem to care. She followed him out. As I think this piano, it's,
4: it's, I, I have a note here. and It's also sort of like on the previous song, too. Um, the piano comes in and it's like, it is a little underproduced is the right word, but it's like it, it also sounds like it's across the room in a different way. And that like, it's not <laughs> quite in time, you know, like, mm-hmm. it's just like, like, it's just a little tentative, right like mm-hmm. it's good like the parts are cool but like it's a little tentative like right? or like like it can't hear the downbeat right
3: yeah i think his sister can really play in that style she gets and she gets to showcase it a couple other times on the record there's one track that's just her right i thought it was an interesting anecdote that when when she was young her first job in music was demoing Hammond organs when they were brand new sounds like
2: a pretty, pretty sweet, sweet gig yeah <laughs>
1: That's awesome.
0: So I wonder, was uh, – and this is going to be kind of – was was Bobby Nelson – did she play piano on Teatro? And so that was her on, like, Home Motel? That is not her uh,
4: on Home Motel because I know that okay. that's that guy, uh, Brad Meldau, who's, yeah. like, yeah. a, Brad, a jazz brought player, in Brad. right?
0: That guy's a beast, yeah. She's <laughs>
3: definitely there on the record, but yeah, I agree. They brought in Brad Meldell.
4: Yeah, I just know that Brad Meldell's on Home Motel, and I know that his appearances on that record are some of his first, like, mainstream, recorded.
3: So Home Motel, uh, excellent song. Actually one of the first songs Willie Nelson ever ever wrote. It's C- crushing. Had rec- crushing. Has actually that recorded the- it numerous times throughout his career, but I think that Teatro version is, is the best.
0: That was the one where Phil, remember you and I went to go see. um, Who was that that we saw? Ah. Um, The jazz player, Bill Frizzell. We were seeing Bill Frizzell and we were like at uh, Yoshi's in Oakland getting sushi at the bar. And we were talking about Teatro and how much we loved Teatro. And we talked about Home Motel and how great and sad of a song that was. And then when they came in, I think that was the first song that they played. Yes, they they played played two sets, and we came for the
4: second set. We came for the the second second set,
0: set and they opened the second set with Home Motel, and you could tell that they had not practiced it, and that they didn't really know it all that well. And we've always we've always posited that one of the musicians was at the bar with us while we were like <laughs> yeah. g- yes. hammering loudly about how great this song is. And he went back and we have to do this song. There's two fans in the audience. Like <laughs> for these two random dudes. That would be such TV. a
3: great musician boosh though. Like I would I would love <laughs> right. to do something like that. Like yes. this will freak these yes. stoners out.
0: Yeah. Yes. Right. Totally. Totally. <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay. Let's roll it right along. We're almost done, this short little album. The next song is Denver. This one's so short that I'm going to be able to play the entire thing
2: right now. My <laughs> shining like diamonds like 10,000 jewels in the sky and it's nobody's business where you're going or where you come from and you're judged by the look in your eyes She saw him that evening Tavern in town in a quiet little out of the way play and they smiled at each other as they walked through the door and they danced with their smiles on their faces.
3: I feel like Denver the city should be annoyed by this. It's
1: it's laughably short.
3: <laughs> it would have been so easy to put a little more in there, will it?
1: But they can tell the character, your character, by the look in your eyes. All right, that's a little corny, but all right.
3: (laughs) I think the only reason, yeah, the only reason this is even there is to get in the line about them dancing with smiles on their faces, which is parallel to when he murders the first two people, and they Mm -hmm. died with smiles on their faces. That's it. But it didn't need to be a separate track.
1: This starts side two, which starts his transition into self-forgiveness, I believe. Ah, so I again, the the feel, like one, one of the things I noticed on, on side one, there's a song called Time of the Preacher Theme. It's 25 seconds. And he says, it's the time of the preacher, but it's down like two whole steps, very somber, very doomish. That whole first side is about murder and regret. And then side two is he's coming out of it. Mm. And so I think Denver is meant to kind of, Lift Your Spirits from this really depressing side one. I think. (laughs) I wouldn't say this song lifted my spirits.
0: It was more, I I think this has more of a, um, this felt more Willie Nelson, I think, than uh, some of the other stuff. Um, This seemed a little bit more maybe like a throwback to. Some of the other stuff that I had heard from him before, and Rob, I agree that that it's it's a country trope again, but this sort of the repeating of the dance dance with the smiles on their on their faces line, they kind of repeat it twice. I think that's a very country thing to do. That doesn't really show up in pop a whole lot where they kind of just like repeat a like a, a chord pattern in the line and just repeat it right again back to back like that. Um, let me ask you guys this: there is a sound that is panned way to the left. And it sounds like a cross between like a kazoo and a harmonica. And I have no idea what it is, but it really... Is
1: that a is that a bass harmonica? Because I know that there are some harmonicas. There was this band in the 50s called the Harmoni- Cats. I think. It was like 15 guys on stage. They all had harmonicas. And one of them had a harmonica that was the size of like a loaf of bread. <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering if that is
0: you know it's possible i think the other option is that like a piece of paper got stuck in a fan and then you just (laughs) left it on the track (laughs) because it doesn't sound melodious it just kind of sounds like (laughs) (laughs)
1: it was way off i may be thinking of a different thing maybe it is just track noise. all right last track
3: on the album last track on our list bandera let's play a snippet of that Closes out the record.
4: I felt like this, maybe similar to uh, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, it felt slightly more produced, as if they wanted to draw a little more attention to the song. Uh, I also think it just has a cool, like this, again, I think Tom just alluded to it. The second side of this record feels a little more like the Willie Nelson I'm familiar with, maybe a little bit of a sign of potentially where he's going. I don't know his 96 album catalog well enough <laughs> to really know the different seasons of Willie Nelson.
3: Yeah. I, I like this guitar a lot, actually. I like this style. I mean, it is kind of Willie Nelson style, but it also has that Mexican polka kind of influence that we mm-hmm. talked about. It, it operates structurally a lot like a jazz tune, which is to say the guitar gets around, the harmonica gets around, then the piano, and it loops back to the guitar again. Like Everyone gets their little mm-hmm. moment there.
1: It's kind of nice. It gave me the feel of when when a Saturday Night Live ends every week and the band picks up with that song. It's like just an instrumental song that's like, all right, well, we're done with the show. Here we go. We're we're heading that out. And this again. gave me that feel. Yeah, you know, this was the out music of the album. So I I actually ascribed
0: this album, uh, this song as um, a bit of a negation of that hopeful feeling that you got from the second side of the album because it feels really sad. And I don't know why, but the well, I have a, a hypothesis as to why the melody makes me feel like they're stuck. And I think that it is they kind of repeat this melodic theme over different chords. And the melo- the notes in the melodic theme don't change even though the chords change and for some reason just gave me the sense of like lack of progress. And so maybe he's like, I'm trying to come back to forgive myself, but I'm really the same guy, and I'm probably going to go out killing again. Um, that's just where my sort of, you know, trying to use that English degree as much as possible. Sure. Um, <laughs> I need- that's heavy, Tom. Yeah, that's good. But that's where my head went. And. Um, You know, beautiful chord changes. Everything about this song is sad. It's beautiful. With the exception of on about a minute 46 in, on the right side, the guitar comes in. And I don't know if he was too close to the mic or whatever, but there's like a definite buzz. And it sounds like the diaphragm of the mic might have been like torn a little bit (laughs) or something like that. Because, again, it has that sort of like paper flappy Uh sound. It's you got to have you have your headphones way up it's on the right side and it's like it's kind of like another like v- v- and it's it's only when the guitar kind of pushes on a couple
1: of uh of the notes that you get it but yeah, maybe, it's not the Volvo sized harmonica that I yeah, have. No. Maybe, t- maybe he should have put a little bit more of that like
0: 60 grand into buying better equipment for the studio I'd, experience maybe done a second take yeah. I don't know yeah, <laughs>
3: yeah. all right all right, I think that's going kind to of about round it out. Let's let's wrap this up by going around the horn and asking ourselves, as we always do each week, Willie Nelson's Red-Headed Stranger, does it need to be heard before you die?
0: Tom, I'll throw it to you. So, at the beginning I said, you know, does this rank as an essential album remains to be seen. I... Think that this conversation has brought me around to yes. Um, there are problems with it, certainly. Some of it feels a little incomplete. Rob, I was wondering how you were going to come in after your incredibly harsh criticisms of the Devendra Bonhart album of having a bunch of unfinished songs that just felt like they weren't long enough to be classified as songs. And these, some of these songs are like that. But I can see that there is a difference in that they all are a part of a whole, whereas that was a disjointed mess of a you know some some hippie. Um, so. I'm going to go for yes, especially because it's not that much of an ask to listen to 32 minutes <laughs> worth of music.
1: So true. Adam. Yeah, I came in pretty hot on this one, and I think the caveat for this week was for me to actually take my time and pay attention to it. So this is not, for me, good background music. As we mentioned earlier, I thought that my playlist was on repeat or something went wrong with Spotify. Once I sat down with it, and actually listened and, and read a little bit up on the, the story. I fell in love with it actually. So I am actually going to say that I think you do need to listen to this album. Willie Nelson sounds great. He always sounds great. So this is a yes for me this week. Phil.
4: Interesting. Well, you know, I really like this record. I really enjoyed this record. And Tom, you make a great point that listening to 32 minutes of Willie Nelson is not a chore, but, my favorite Willie Nelson record, Teatro, got snubbed. It's not on the list for that reason. Oof. I can't.
0: That is a travesty. I
4: can't <laughs> vote for this record. I feel like this is not the best Willie Nelson record. Oh, this is a great record. I mean, go buy this record. Listen to it. It's fabulous. I really, I'm just. I'm. This is a. It's like making a. Moral stand. Not moral. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> principled. <laughs> it's a principled stand. Yeah, principled, Yeah, sure. sure yeah. <laughs> principled. Moral is way. That's fucked up. By the way, is uh, Teatro came out in 98. It is his 45th studio album. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, if you don't get it right the first time, you know.
3: That I mean, that means he's almost put he's put fifty albums out in the last twenty years, just about. Jesus Christ!
0: Man, is a workhorse. He's a workhorse. Okay, he did have some tax problems for a while. He but sure he needed did. Money, <laughs> so he, maybe yeah. he's trying to rebuild that that generational wealth.
3: No, for sure, he had to do some of that in the nineties specifically, and you know, it was the result of a shady manager business deal kind of thing, and he owed the IRS a bunch of money. He ended up working with the IRS to do a bunch of concerts and. And they and they forgave a bunch of his debt. Like he took the he took the Willie Nelson road. He was like, Hey, how about we work together and make this money instead of putting me in jail or whatever? And they were like, Yeah, all right. Sounds good.
0: <laughs> I did read that at one point he like had to abscond from his house with trigger because they were going to like repossess trigger because they were like, This is an incredibly valuable thing and you have this debt to pay down he's like, No fucking way. Um, yeah. I like, can't oh, yeah. can't do you that. You can't take trigger like that would be the kind of thing where they'd auction it off and some super fan would buy it and give it back to him type of thing, be like, Just come play at my house, that's all I asked. You know?
3: Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think this <laughs> one <laughs> I think this one falls to me. And I'm gonna start this with a quick anecdote about Willie Nelson I didn't get to drop in, but it was one of the favorite ones. I've heard he's he said something to the effect of he's he's had four marriages in his life, I think. And he says something to the effect of I, I always got along great with the opposite sex, right until I started marrying him. And one of the one of the best stories I heard was that um, the the precipitation of his I think second divorce I want to say maybe his third divorce was that his wife was washing his pants and found a hospital bill in the back pocket that was for the birth of his love child. Wow! So I thought that was great.
1: Uh, yeah, it's a... it's a Back when they just used to give you a paper <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. at the hospital. Like,
4: you imagine that conversation? You'd be like, <laughs> honey, excuse me, what is this? Like, oh, baby, don't you worry about that. That's, that's... Oh, sweetheart, that's not... Right? Like, how do you even begin yeah. to yeah. try to... How, that's 18
0: years worth of payments I'm going to have to hide from <laughs> you. How do you
4: even life? begin <laughs> to try to... There's no... there's nothing. your way there's out no, of that one? Yeah. yeah, there's
1: nothing there. It's nothing you do. It's time to read. Fake a, fake a heart attack <laughs> and come up with a story in the hospital. It's on the, on the, on the, the road again. <laughs> right.
4: For you. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
3: okay. Yeah, I was somewhat conflicted as well. I don't think it's Willie Nelson's best record, but I do think it's essential because of the context. So it's a yes for me because of where it sits in Willie Nelson's catalog the first time that he as a performer, got a chance to really take full creative control of what he wanted to do because it's a concept album, and I'm a sucker for concepts albums generally, and because I do think he is a great and important artist, and everyone should listen to a bit more Willie Nelson. In fact, I prepared a little Willie Nelson play- primer playlist. If anyone's interested, I'll, I'll include it in the notes. Definitely listen to more of his stuff. He's, he's got an intimidating catalog, as we've discussed, I think this is a a pretty reasonable starting place, if not necessarily the best, but there are some other great records that that we've talked about over the years. Stardust is great, Teatro is great, and he's got plenty of great songs uh, buried on lots of different records, so I'm comfortable putting it on the list. Willie Nelson, Buddy, you're on the list. Good job. Yay! Yay!
0: I feel like he would actually be like, "Oh, super cool, guys. That's super great." Cool. You know, like most artists, would be like, "I don't care what four random oh, assholes why? think." But I think Willie Nelson would be the kind That's of guy great. be like, "Oh, right on, man. Yeah. Right on." Yeah, I, the, awesome. other, <laughs> I, the other thing I got to share too is I went to see Willie Nelson
3: sometime within the last ten years. It might have been seven years ago or something at the Greek in Berkeley, and he was in his eighties definitely at that time. So maybe it was only five years ago. I don't know. And you know. I kind of got out of the habit, I think we all did, of going to these old rock star shows at a certain point. You know, they just don't give you the same. But anyway, I was happily surprised. He had a lot of pep for an 82-year-old or whatever he was. He was ripping that guitar. Like, he was playing hard and singing and everything, and I just, I was really moved by the whole performance. So I got to give him a lot of credit. He gets up and he goes at what he wants he's a workhorse as we've already said with the recording but also with the touring and also with the pot smoking and I'm yeah. sure whatever else he's into right so good good on him I, I think he's great and like and his persona is just admirable in a lot of ways so I dig him listen to more of him that's going to be the end of our Willie Nelson episode I think what remains is to discuss what's coming up next week and dear listeners because it is a special week we're doing something what?
1: Why? Why? What? We're doing
3: something a little special next week for our 50th episode. All right? Very, very momentous occasion. We've made it to 50. I can barely believe it. So, next week, instead of spinning that old albinator, we're going to go through an album we all agree is a classic. We don't need to debate whether or not it belongs on the darn list. I know you've been waiting for this one. It's Dark Side of the Moon by none other than Pink Floyd. So we're going to do a deep dive on Dark Side of the Moon. We shall not we I'm sure we'll be complaining about it, but we shall not be debating whether or not it belongs <laughs> on the list of albums you must hear next week, but we will be talking about it in in depth and nerdiness that you've come to love. So look forward to that one.
1: Buckle up. Buckle Sweet.
3: up. Indeed, <laughs> it is a classic. Cool, we're going to sign off now. Before I do, if you have any thoughts, comments, feelings, emotions about any of this, please drop us a line at 1001albumcomplaints at gmail. We'd love to hear from you. It's great to, to hear what you think, and we appreciate all y'all listening. And if you want to help us out, share this podcast with a friend. Go ahead and rate us on whatever podcast app you're listening to or review us. All of it matters. We really appreciate it. We're going to sign off now. For 1001 Album Complaints, I've been Rob.
0: I am Tom.
1: I'm Adam.
4: And I am Phil.
1: Boosh.
0: Doobie 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 doobie, doobie.